Please be comfortable. It won't be long, don't worry. Be comfortable in an appropriate way. Bishop, Mr. Dean, fellow presbyters and deacons, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a great honor to be here. Thank you. But it is greater to watch the wife of the almost-to-be dean in action. Now, Kathleen and I, my wife, often say we use the plural, our ministry. We are going to do something. Now, we have been called. I have heard that out of your mouth constantly. So I want you all to know you are not getting a dean. You are getting a team, and that is a good thing. Mrs. Dean-to-be, thank you for this honor. Thank you. Yes, that is appropriate. Now, I know a couple of you, but only a couple of you. Largely, I am a stranger unknown to you and, frankly, you to me. And with every preacher, it's important to have a little bit of credibility, and credibility comes in knowing who it is that's talking to you about Jesus and about God. So I want to tell you a story. It's a story about my family because it will tell you a lot about why you and I are here, okay? I grew up in a family of old people. Now, when I mean old people, I mean old. My grandparents were 90 when I was born, and when they died, they were 90. They were 90 their whole lives. <laughs> my parents had me late in life. My two sisters, Barbie and Carol, are 15 and 17 years older than I. When I finally realized what had happened, I realized, oh, it was a mistake. I'm a beloved mistake. That's a good thing. My parents always said I kept them young. But everybody in my house was old. Everybody. <laughs> Now, we had old people in my house, and my grandfather, who also was 90 when I was born, and was 98 when I died, and he lived for about 30 years when I uh, was there, he had a sister. And his sister, Aunt Nanny, who was my great aunt, lived in Riverside, California. Now, she was a, a maiden aunt. She never got married. She never, well, she dated once, but that's a different story. She, she was alone her whole life. My grandma Dunkel, my father's mother, lived in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, and her husband died 50 years earlier. She lived much longer alone than she lived with my grandfather, who I never knew. So Grandma Dunkel and Aunt Nanny liked each other, completely separate parts of the family, but they liked each other, and they really liked each other in January, in February, in March, and here is why. We lived in St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> I can tell you understand. You have a smart diocese, Bishop. <laughs> it must get cold here, and it got really cold in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. And it got really lonely in Riverside, California. And so Aunt Nanny from Riverside, California, and Grandma Dunkel from Lock Haven, Pennsylvania would get on their respective transportation devices, and Aunt Nanny would fly to St. Peter's, or actually to Tampa, on National Airlines. Remember National Airlines? Hi, I'm Jane. Barbara, fly me. Aunt, uh, Grandma Dunkel would get on the Silver Meteor in Washington, D.C., having taken a little train from Lock Haven there, and wheel her way south. And they would meet up right after New Year's, and they would live at our house with my grandfather and my family for three months. I grew up with really old people. <laughs> now, because my sisters were younger uh, than they... <laughs> They had one job in life, 
So my grandma and uncle and my aunt nanny told them. Their job was to find a husband and get married. Now, I know, Mary Ellen, you've never heard this. You've never heard this in your life from anybody, I'm sure. But back 40 years ago, this was really popular. So what would happen is we would go to family weddings, or they would go, and you'd go to a wedding, and, and when Barbie and Carol were 12 and 14, it was kind of delightful the way this worked, because it happened every time. It was like a playbook, that at the punch bowl, Aunt Nanny and Grandma Dunkel, and they were little people. They were old and little. I mean, like diminutively small. They would, they would lock arms, and they would come up to them, and they'd stick out their bony fingers and say, you're next, you're next. Now, when you're 12 and 14, that's kind of delightful. <laughs> you're next, that's great, I'm going to marry someday. Every year, January, February, March, sometimes into April if Easter was late, you're next, you're next. The weddings would come. Grandma, Uncle, and Aunt Nanny were living with us. Barbie and Carol got older. Once you get to be about 16 and 18, it's, oh, it's mildly interesting. Once you get to be about 20 and 22, it's kind of irritating. And when you're 23 and 25, you don't want two old ladies telling you at the punch bowl, you're next, you're next. It was tough. Then one January, the silver meteor arrived and National Airlines flew into Tampa. Grandma, Dunkle, and Aunt Nanny were there for yet another winter season. And there were no weddings. There were no family weddings. But because people were getting older, there was a family funeral. My sisters had a plan. <laughs> right. You know where this is going. They had a plan. Now, funerals happen, and then you go to the parish hall for refreshments, and you gather around the punch bowl. And so Carol and Barbie went over to the punch bowl, joined arms like this, and reached their bony fingers out at Grand Aunt Nanny and Grandma and Uncle and said, You're next! You're next! <laughs> yep. That never, ever happened again at my house. <laughs> they were fixed. What in the world does that have to do with today? It has everything to do with today. You see, the whole liturgy that you think is really about installing a new dean, having a beloved bishop come, having fellow priests and deacons come, that's not it at all. Sorry. It's about you all. It's about you gathered here. And I am absolutely delighted that all seats are filled. Because it means you understand that it is not about calling some guy and his family the team of Chris and Julie to come do ministry. It is about you. I've got some news for you. You're next. <laughs> it's true. You're next. And this story goes on. If you think, hey, somebody ought to build a house for Habitat for Humanity, guess what? You're next. If you think that, hey, we need to have a prison ministry to serve those people that Jesus said we ought to go visit, guess what? It's up to you. If you think, hey, we need to get a group of people together and go down to South America or Africa and, and, and teach people about Jesus Christ that might not know him, hey, guess what? That's your job. You're next. Now, so that you won't think that I somehow made up this story right now, it's old. It's an old story. 3,000 years ago. Moses retold us the story in Numbers. Now, you don't get to hear Numbers very often in church. It's kind of fun, isn't it? Book of Numbers, part of the Pentateuch. I had to say that word because I'm a dean of a seminary. Pentateuch. Five, five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That Numbers book, it's there to tell us a story. 
It's there to tell us a story about what happened 3,000 plus years ago with faithful people just like you and me. You see, what you heard was a little snippet. Moses said, get 70 elders here, and God put a little bit of his spirit upon them, and then they went off and did work. Well, that sounds like sort of bylaws for church building, doesn't it? Biblical bylaws. We need to know the backstory. The backstory to that story is awfully important because what was happening is the whole company of Israel, probably a million people, had just been brought out of the bondage in Egypt, and they had crossed through the Red Sea. Remember, it parted. Everybody crossed. The Egyptians were left behind. God was rescuing and saving these people. And what happened? They complained. We don't have enough to eat. So we gave them manna. But they didn't like manna. They wanted appetizers and hors d'oeuvres. So they, they started saying, we want meat. We want meat. And Moses said to God, I, I can't handle this. I cannot handle this. And frankly, I can't handle these people. So what did God do? God said, you get 70 people. You get them together. They're representatives of the rest of the million people. And you get them. And I'll show them who's God. But more than that, I'll show them what they're supposed to do. God said to them, you're next. You're next. The story continues on. It continues on through ages. Paul tells it. Paul tells it so much more elegantly. He tells it in poetry. You know, you know poetry we learn in undergraduate when we get to take poetry courses, that it's, it's the, the literature that speaks to us in such a deep way that it doesn't have to have descriptive words. It has concept. You kind of close your eyes and you listen to poetry flow over you. And then you get the deep, deep meaning. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood. You know this one. Well, Paul's writings are a lot like that. When Paul tells us we are the body of Christ, there's so many layered meanings. It doesn't mean that just somebody gets to be the right hand and somebody the left foot and somebody the head and somebody the interior elbow. It means that when we're the right hand or the left foot or the head or the nose or the, the gullet, it means we don't have to worry about having those tasks done by somebody else. You see the, you're next, you're next. That's not a scary thing. That's a comforting thing. To know that we are part of the body of Christ that have gathered together here at this glorious cathedral at this time and this moment and installing a leader, no doubt, a leader. But it's really about empowering you. It's about empowering you. So if you, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, thought you were going to come here for a glorious service and then go for delicious hot chocolate and go home and say, that's done, we tricked you. <laughs> we tricked you. Because you're next. You're next. 